Hi, it's Susan, and I'm an expert in helping musicians to have better relationships with themselves and with the world. This episode, we meet Jackson Harnwell, and Jackson talks about how the fear of losing his love of music and music becoming a chore by having to make a career was too much to bear, and combined with self-doubt and burnout, he had to step away. He also talks with great honesty about his journey to heal, reconnect, and own his creativity, regardless of his job title. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode of the Change Your Tune podcast. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge, and I'm really delighted to welcome our guest today, Jackson Harnwell, Higher Education Administrator. Jackson, good morning. Good morning, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Jackson, Higher Education Administrator, it's quite a, um, a broad title. Can you tell us what you actually do? Yeah, thanks, Susan. Look, it's always a really interesting um question that I get asked you know what do you do for work and I say I work at a university and then immediately the next question is oh what do you teach Uh, and you know I am one of the many thousands of staff that actually sit behind the scenes and uh I've taken a a range of roles within the higher education structure over my time um supporting the academic and the teaching staff to to do what they do best uh, and taking care of a lot of the paperwork in the background and the policy risk management. Uh, and so my current role um, to, to delve in where I've landed at the moment is overseeing the clinical training programs for medical and health students uh, across a range of disciplines that, that go into hospitals, into community care facilities, and uh, are getting that essential clinical training that will then enable them to enter the workforce as a, as a competent professional. And uh, my role in that is making sure that we have the contract signed, that we have good relationships with our, with our partners, that we're in line with uh, the, the government policies and, and university procedures. Uh, and that's been a really exciting space to work in over the last sort of 18 months to two years with during the COVID pandemic, where these things have been changing really rapidly and, and, the academic staff have really needed to focus on supporting the students and delivering great education. And my role is to make sure that they don't have to worry about all of the other pieces in the background that's uh, as easy as possible for them. Uh, gosh, attention to detail 101 in that <laughs> in that job. And I bet you um, lots of legal, lots of legal uh, uh, paperwork and all sorts of bits and pieces to have to get through. So that's not where I, I, I'm going to take a punt and say this is not where you necessarily thought you would be at this point in your life. Um, and obviously, the podcast is talking to trained musicians. So can we go back to right back to the beginning um, to school? And can you talk us through that journey that led you to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my, um, I guess, my first exposure into performing or or learning uh, to be a performer was around the age of six. And I uh, had the opportunity to take up piano lessons uh, through my primary school and uh, started, I I wouldn't say playing the piano, maybe bashing the piano at that age. And, uh, but it was something that I really enjoyed. It was something that I looked forward to every week and there's home videos of me even younger than that age dancing around the house and and singing along to to songs and putting on a persona and 
And so I'm really grateful, actually, that my parents identified that and, and grabbed that opportunity when I was six for some more formal training to, to commence. And then, uh, so I did that for a few years. Uh, around the age of 10, uh, I joined the, uh, the choir of the cathedral in the, in the town that I grew up in. And that was, uh, I'm not a particularly religious person. My, my family's not particularly religious, uh, but it was a, an amazing opportunity that just connected with me to be able to not just create on my own, but to bond with others and to be able to sing in a group and share the, the emotion. Uh, and I, I have some memories of my my choir master having to having to settle me down because you know church choir you meant to stand there all very you know uh, stoic and grim faced as you sing perfectly constructed vows and I wanted to I wanted to dance I wanted to to move around and and really express that that emotion that was you know inside me and that that feeling that I had as I was singing and he uh, the, the the chorus master really grabbed onto that and went well I, th- I think there's something more here and and started giving me leadership opportunities uh you know i was the the head boy chorister for for a period of time and uh then uh, my voice broke as a teenager and i uh, moved into the adult portion of the choir and uh, that's when he then started giving me additional opportunities to uh, conduct a few a few portions uh of this of the service and uh, and then I guess we we moved into him giving me some more formal lessons around music theory and and conducting and and also singing. He became my singing teacher, and that really was probably all starting to really accelerate in my early years of high school. Uh, so you know around the ages of fifteen, uh, sixteen, it was really starting to to take off. And it was really at that point that I went, this is the most amazing, I get the most amazing feeling every time I perform, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And, and I'd identified by that point that conducting was something that I loved. I'm a bit of a control freak and that hasn't changed. And, you know, that ability to stand at the front of a group and say, this is what we're going to do today. And it's going to be amazing. And to, to lead them on that journey and, and to, tie them together and bring them together to, to collaborate on something um, was, was just the most amazing thing. And of course, conducting is a very physical act. And, and that was something that had been coming through in my singing, even in the early years. So I really connect with that. But of course, you can't just become a conductor. You can't just go to university and do a course and say, I'm a conductor now. You know, th- there is a journey. There's this expectation that you, <clears throat> that you have a, an instrument that, that that you are a professional in, that you are an incredibly high standard in. And that was something I sort of struggled with. I had, I had a bit of piano. I had taken on the trumpet um, for a few years at, at high school. And they were, they were great. I enjoyed them, but they weren't the same as singing. It's something that I really connected with. And so I decided that, that voice was my instrument. And I, I really, um, I guess, knuckled down and, uh, and focused on that. And and ended up uh, starting a Bachelor of Music at the end of my high schooling at, at, at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, especially in classical voice. And that was, 
again, just the most amazing opportunity to meet these. You know, I, I'd been the, the big fish in a small pond. I grew up in a, a regional town uh, in, in northeast Victoria, about 25,000 people. And, you know, I was the, the star. And suddenly I'm in Melbourne where there's all these people that are, are incredibly talented. And that was both amazing and very confronting. And I guess uh, really that's when my, my perspective started to shift and I started to, and we can probably go into this a little further later, but start to have some of those self-doubts of, well, hang on, you know, maybe there's more work here than I had actually anticipated there, there being or understood that there was going to be to just be able to do this for the rest of my life. And all those adult sensibilities start coming in of, well, hang on, I've got rent and I've got bills and I want to travel and uh, and have the the latest iPhone, you know, and how am I going to make that happen as as a performer? And so some of those questions started to come in and uh, and I guess that's potentially where well, that was the start of my transition into a, a different career. Um, so it's really interesting to hear, Jackson, that you had that experience of being so so immersed and so rewarded for your artistry and then coming even further down the pipeline into the very niche training of classical music voice that you, you didn't that, that that I think there might have been two ways that might have gone one is further down the rabbit hole of practice room life um, but it seemed that you, you took that other deviation so was this like towards the end of your music degree that you were starting to become aware of the realities of what life as a as a performer is like and then and then what happened what happened to you so my uh my perspective coming into my university training was that I, I was pretty good I, I definitely had more to learn uh but I was in a really good place and that perspective shifted very quickly uh when I became part of a cohort of people who uh, to my mind, singing came much easier, and and there were there were th rightly or wrongly things that I seemed to find really difficult that others didn't, and and some really foundational things. Others friends that I have, some I've got some you know to this day some brilliant friends who seem incapable of singing out of tune. It's something that they have to work really hard at if they want to sing out of tune. Whereas for me, singing in tune sometimes was a real challenge. If I was a little bit tired or my technique was ever so slightly off, uh, you know, then, then that would be a real struggle for me. And, and I think some of that was psychological. I think quite a lot of that actually looking back was, was psychological that uh, it was the shock of being surrounded by these amazing people that then caused me to overanalyze and to, to not be able just to sink into my body and let it happen. And, uh, and my, my teacher, I had a fantastic teacher, Susie Johnston, and uh, she really worked with me and, and uh, the development over the, the next few years was brilliant. But I guess what I found was that coming to the end of my music degree uh, in my third year and, and starting to think about, well, what was next? I was absolutely in this phase of conscious incompetence. And, and some of the list, if your listeners may understand this model where, where you start 
with when you're learning a new skill in this phase of unconscious incompetence, you, you don't really know, uh, you know, that you're potentially doing things wrong. And you move into this phase of conscious incompetence where you're very aware, but you can't do much about it. And then progressing from there into conscious competence where you can do it right, but you have to work at it. And then unconscious competence where it really is ingrained and something you don't have to think too hard about. And so I was in this phase of conscious incompetence where it just seemed that I couldn't do anything, that, that everything that I was working so hard and I could identify all these deficits and all these problems, but no matter how hard I practiced, no matter how much work I did, I just couldn't seem to overcome these, these hurdles. And I think some of this maybe was linked to, uh, to my conducting as well, that I have always, for as long as I can remember, had a really clear idea in my mind about how I wanted something to sound and to work. And to not be able to produce that for myself was, was really quite challenging. Uh, so by the end of my undergraduate degree, I recognized that I was completely burnt out and uh, that there was no immediate step for me afterwards. Uh, I wasn't seeking to jump straight into an opera company. I didn't feel that I was ready for that. Uh, but I, I was so fatigued. I just could do more in this uh, in this classical music space that you know where, where everything has to be. You're taught that everything has to be perfect and precise and done a certain way, and and I needed a break from that. And so I took uh, I, I took a year uh, where I said I'm not going to sing classically for a year. And in that time, I hadn't. I had an incredible opportunity to uh, do an amateur theatre, musical theatre piece. I, I'd had dabbled in theatre throughout my my childhood and my and my teenage years, uh, but I, was, I got a, an ensemble role in uh, a, fa- a production of the Phantom of the Opera, and that was just a great way to blend some of my classical training with just returning to the joy of performing, to developing something with others, to be able to express yourself physically and not have to wear a suit and a bow tie. And, uh, and that was really important for me uh, to, to reconnect with what it means for me personally to be able to create music. <laughs> if, if we go back just a, a little bit, uh, while I was still studying my undergraduate, I'd taken a casual uh, opportunity at the university, so a casual work opportunity. Uh, and this was really just to bring in money to pay the rent while I was at university. And it was a, a entry position contact center, the 13 Mobile contact center. And uh, that was just bubbling along while I was studying. And at the point where I finished my undergraduate degree, and I was having this bit of a crisis and I wasn't sure what to do next. And I, I'd express, expressed that to some of the management team uh, at the university, just in a bit of a venting moment. And they said to me, well, actually, Jackson, we would be quite happy to increase your hours here for, you know, if you're planning on taking a break and you're not sure what you're going to do, we would love to retain you here. You know, you've been working with us for, must've been 18 months or two years at that point. And, you know, we would, 
we would love to capitalize on your experience because we have high turnover in roles like this generally. And I thought, well, I've got nothing better to do, so I might as well be earning some money. And uh, so I, I stayed and a few months in, an opportunity came up to become a team leader. And I thought, well, still don't know what I'm doing. So sure, I'll, I'll take a full-time team leader role. And, and from there, it just kind of spiraled that more opportunities started to, to come up and I increased my network in the organization and people saw the, uh, the work that I did. And, uh, and I guess I moved around the organization um, for, in a variety of different roles, a lot, of, a lot to do with supporting students and something that I was quite passionate about, and, but, but in a range of different ways. And, and I think people really identified that that was one of my skills that I could jump into unknown territory and be really crystal clear on the outcome that I wanted to achieve, the, the principles, and just figure out uh, we could probably explore further. That's something that I think is a real link to my performing history. Uh, thank you for sharing, Jackson, with such honesty. I know it's very, I know firsthand, and I can see from our connection because we've got the screen on um, that it brings up a lot of challenging emotions talking about this time um, for all of us so thank you for for sharing that um, just on what you were saying about that ability to jump in on unknown territory and figure out what to do with a crystal clear uh, view I mean that's conducting 101 right you're given this incredibly complicated um, set of information to have to manage and you have to know how to realize that not only musically but um also in okay well how many rehearsals do i have and am i missing the oboe player in the third rehearsal so it's it's not it's not it's not just as easy as having the musical realization in your head but it's also how am i going to the operationalization of that how am i going to achieve this with the amount of resources and people that we've got available so it makes complete sense to me that that those two things map together because you had training to do that and what i'm what i'm hearing in your story so much particularly in this um you keep using the word opportunity and i i would challenge you to um maybe think about that those things are actually a result of the skill that you bring like it's not you know it's people acknowledging seeing you not magic um because you have you know great in, incredible skills is that what happened in the music degree is your whole self of which the vocal performer was one part of that. There was no, and there continues to be not enough capacity within the way we train a music degree to, to um, value the whole self and all the skills that we bring that actually are crucial for the demands of the work, like your ability to listen and work with people and your attention to detail, all these things that make you excellent at the work you're doing now. You had those in, those, in you as a music student, because you'd had those opportunities as a choral young, uh, being involved in the choir as a child, but the, but the system and the written and unwritten curriculum um, doesn't allow for our whole selves to be explored. And so that's what you said when you were able to get out of that in back into this work in, in within the universities, there were people who could, who could see your whole self and were able to, um, as you said, 
give you those opportunities to be able to advance and make make greater impact. So it makes sense you kind of got squashed in a way squashed down and then it, that's been released back out again. That That's what I'm hearing out of this story. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on a, uh, the point that you mentioned about opportunity there. I uh, I heard once a, a brilliant quote that's really stuck with me and I sadly can't uh, can't attribute it because I, I don't recall uh, who actually said it, but it was that luck is where opportunity meets preparation. And, you know, I've, I've used the word opportunity uh, not to devalue the work that I uh, that I had put in to make myself ready for that opportunity when it arose and and I think a lot of young artists are probably not so young artists and people in other industries you know it's really important to remember that that there is an element of luck the the right opportunity has to arrive but you have to be ready for it and and you have to be prepared to grasp it and throw yourself into it and really run with it and stuck with me for for many years to your next point about uh sort of being squashed into the university and having uh perhaps other aspects of my of my personality that i was able to to show through that it's it's really interesting i would say that for the early part of my university career i really didn't feel that i could express myself fully. I was tapping into other things, but it was a bit of, I, I had let things go from my and performing side uh, or, or separated them, perhaps is a better way of saying I'd separated that creative outlet from my, my work persona. And uh, it's only probably in recent years as I've, you know, I've been working for um, my current employer now working in higher education for 10 years. And it's probably only in the last maybe three or four years that I've been able to recognize and accept just how much my creative self influences the work that I do and is valuable to the organization and that it's not something that should be kept separate. It's something that should be showcased and 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 brought forward in the in the, and part of that I think is that for my early career early years of my career in higher education um, and after I'd finished university I didn't have a, a clean break from performing I was still connected uh, a young opera development program that I was a part of through my university years uh, opera scholars Australia I remained with them in a conducting position for for a few years and uh, I was running most of the rehearsal program for for this young group of of singers and one of my passions one of the reasons that I that connected with me as a conductor was that it was an opportunity for me to teach them differently they were most of them were at university and were getting that formal training out our job, my job was not to teach them how to sing. They were getting all of that technical training. My job was to teach them how to perform. And, and they could only perform by connecting with themselves. And uh, I've, I've heard you talk about on, on previous episodes of this podcast about uh, 
using expressive language as a conductor, um, emotive language, rather to describe what you want, rather than technical language of loud and soft, fast and slow. And that really resonated with me and, and something, a great gift that I was given by an early choir master. It was always about the emotion you were trying to convey or the feeling or, you know, that we are storytellers. And if, we, if we're so focused on being technically correct, we can't connect with our audience because humans are not technically correct. We are not perfect in the way that we express ourselves. You know, we, we, we break down and, and that emotion needs to come through in the way that we, that we perform. So that was really fulfilling for me. And I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, um, but uh, sort of that was something that was really important. And that experience came to an end for me in, in 2015. I, I separated from that organization and uh, I had decided at that point that really my performing aspirations were were dead you know it wasn't a um it wasn't that I'd taken a bit of a career pause and that I was going to come back and pursue a career as a performer that I had decided by that point that performing was always going to be a big part of my life as a hobby it was not going to be my career and so you know I started making decisions about further study uh, and and what sort of my pathway was going to be. And so that then meant I just didn't have the time to give to, to being a conductor in a professional capacity anymore. So a lot of the elements that uh, I was able to get out through my performing work, I now had to find another outlet for them. And that was through my work in higher education and being able to fully own. No, I'm, I'm a performer. I may be working in a higher education administration in a medical and health faculty, but I bring background as an opera singer, as a conductor, and I look at problems in a different way and can come up with solutions in a different way. And you all need to understand that and, and access that, leverage that. Uh, and so that, I think, has created a much more fulfilling experience for me in that uh, white-collar professional capacity. Um, it's fascinating, Jackson, because what I, I hear so much from opera singers is uh, how much other people outside classical music, uh, they seem to always, oh, you're an opera singer, and they seem to have a construct for the skills that that means you can bring with you. And it's, it seems to be a little bit different for instrumentalists. There's not quite the same, oh, you play the timpani. Um, and I don't know if it's that they don't really know what a timpani is or, um, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the, the, the act of you being the vessel making you a different kind of musician. And, and I think the same thing with improvising musicians as well, um, that it's different to classical instrumentalists because um, we hide behind, we, we can hide behind the instrument and we often, we're not trained that actually we are the instrument and the piece of machinery is the amplifier. So it's quite, I think it's maybe a different experience for us as instrumentalists. Um, and I just want to, yeah, it's just fascinating. I'm just, I'm loving this conversation. Um, I think also what you were saying about um, teaching them to connect with themselves is really fascinating. And I wonder what 
so two questions for you. One, um, one, what did it? What were the feelings you were having around this time of uh, coming to the acceptance that this performing part of your life uh, was coming to a natural conclusion, or maybe it wasn't coming to a natural conclusion? Sorry, I shouldn't make that assumption. That thing. And secondly, what is all of this? All of these experiences. How is that impacting the? the value and the purpose of the work that you do now, which is to help students? That's a really good question. I think for me, uh, those those final, if you like, few years of, of working with Opera Scholars Australia as a conductor uh, was incredibly fulfilling because I was working alongside uh, one of my very, very best friends who had also been a, a part of the program. We had connected through university and uh, they had moved into a, uh, a theatre director kind of role. And so together we were really creating some amazing things. We uh, together staged a performance of Bizet's Carmen in the old Melbourne jail and, you know, created that entire experience uh, end to end, all of the, all of the administration and management, but then me on the music side and, and, and them on the visual side and the, and the staging side and the character development side. That was incredible. We, we put on a performance, a gala performance at the Melbourne Recital Centre and these were things that were new for the program. They were new for us and we were learning together, but we were working in partnership and we were able to bring the, the scholars, the young singers uh, along with us on that journey. And the fulfillment at the end was, was incredible. Um, I, I think as I started to realize that that was coming to an end and uh, it was it was really challenging. Uh, it's it's difficult to disconnect uh, something that has been such a ingrained part of your life for so long. But I was actually quite comfortable with it. I had realised that if I was to try to make a living out of this uh, thing we call performing, it was going to be a lot of work for the next few years. And that was fine. I was comfortable with that. And I, I was reasonably confident that if I put in that work, I, I could be successful. Uh, I had really good feedback from my, my singing teacher, from my conducting mentors, uh, that I was reasonably confident that I could make it if I wanted to. But what did making it look like? And the more I delved into that, I realized that particularly in Australia, making it as a classical music performer means taking gigs that you don't actually want because you need to pay the bills and you don't get to choose what performance opportunities come up. You, you, you can, at times you will have that choice, but at times you won't. And that wasn't for me. For, for me, it was one day picking my favorite Shania Twain song and singing along to that all day. And you know, because it made me feel good. And the idea of this thing that I love so much, that gives me so much joy becoming a chore was terrifying. And it may not have ever eventuated that way, but 
but I couldn't face this possibility that that singing would become hard in the sense that I wouldn't want to do it anymore. And so for me, that was really a way of reconciling it within myself, that if I disconnect the, the performing from the career, then I can... I can have a life where, where I have financial stability and uh, that, that enables me to, to do all of the other things in my life that I want to be able to do, whilst also still being able to perform and love it. And that could be performing in my lounge room to myself. It could be performing in the shower, but I can still love it because I'm not depending on it for survival. This is the fourth or fifth conversation I've had where um, the conversation has got to when I disconnected the music from having to make money from it, everything else fell away and I, and I, I understood and I felt so much better and I was able to either become unstuck or take a step forward. Or But that realisation of that you can disconnect those two things and then the next step of, well, how do I have this in my life in a way that makes meaning and sense to me, which is Shania Twain in the shower, go you. Um, but that, yeah, this is this is a really significant point. And, the, and, and I've also had a really good conversation with uh, Ralph Bathurst who talked about um, when I disconnected performing from making music, he said, I realised that the act, of, the act of performance takes me out of the music because I'm... You know my tests, performance anxiety. My my um, my neural pathways get hijacked by um, you know the fact that there's other people in the room. And he said, and he he's worked professionally in Christchurch, Stephanie York Street in New Zealand. But he said he had he has had to come to realise that performing is not what music making is for him. And for so many of us, this like you talked about, particularly I think in the opera world about making it, and that's never discussed in detail. What does making it actually look like, and what are the realities and the steps to that, and what are the things that you're giving up to do that, particularly around control and financial stability? Um, is yeah, it seems it's just fascinating to hear. This is a theme that's coming up again and again of. I realised I could, when I when I had that realisation and then when I realised I could choose that, that that was a breakthrough moment for me. So then um, to the question of what all of this, because uh, the, the notes that I've made, and, and I think we'll probably get to this in a minute, is you have in a way returned the gift that was given to you by your chorus master and you, the words you used were the chorus master said, I think there's something more here about you so this talent development um, for you being given those leadership opportunities early exposure to lead and take risk in a safe way um, you said I'm a bit of a control freak attention to detail welcome to every classical music everywhere early exposure in conducting and all this conducting which is again um, collaborative leadership style plus plus the experience you've had of recently being a student in a very, you know, um, in, a, in a field that's very challenging, that doesn't have a linear path. What is all of this put together looking like for you now in the work that you're doing for the students? Yeah. Yeah. I, 
I've come to, as I kind of uh, indicated before, I've really started to come to a point of realizing my holistic self and and that all of my experiences feed into the way that I operate. And that has shaped me as a leader as well. I manage staff uh, in my in my professional life and it's given me a much greater appreciation that everyone has these very unique experiences and uh, is tapping into experiences because often the that anyone that's had a career transition, it's been because there's been elements that they've enjoyed and elements that they have wanted to move away from. So let's find and identify the elements that they enjoyed and capitalize on them. And one of the things that you know, I, I do a lot of reading about um, sort of business and management, and one of the things that really frustrates me in large organizations and the way that the world appears to be moving these days is that we must only hire people who have done this exact job before. And I don't understand that because we see that the world evolves, the world is changing. I mean, think back 20 years ago, we, we didn't have smartphones. We, we barely had the internet. Uh, so things change. And if we want things to change, we need to bring in new perspectives. And so I love hiring people and identifying those people who've been bold enough to apply, even though their experience doesn't seem to indicate that this is a right fit for them. And trying to tease out, well, what is it that's caught their interest in this role? And what is it that they have that we've never explored before? Uh, and that's a risk, but as a performer, you're used to taking risks and you're used to those crisis situations where a risk doesn't pay off and you have to find your way out of it pretty quickly and, and manage the fallout. And so I'm quite comfortable in that space. And I, I think um, the world would be a much better place if more organizations employed performers because performers, artists of the non-performing variety as well, have so many diverse skills, uh, but when you really break it down, they're many of the same skills that are, are required for a successful career in stakeholder management, in business, uh, all of those, uh, in, in customer service, you know, this idea of, Doing some working hard yourself for the benefit of others, uh, you know, is a mindset that the the world would benefit from. Uh, I'm not trying to say that we should not have any soul uh, artists out there or people who do artists for, uh, do art or performing for their as their sole career pathway. Absolutely, we need those people too. But for those that are considering a transition you really think about the skills that you have and the skills that you can bring and showcase them because I guarantee you there are managers out there who understand and will be looking for that and will value it. I think you've hit on a really interesting point there, Jackson, about this um, when you were talking about the hiring process. And um, I'm reading a really amazing book at the moment by Adam Grant called Think Again, 
um, which I'll link in the in the show notes. It's just amazing. But he, he he's talking in there about that there's a difference between experience and expertise. And you can have both, but you can also have one of those two things and the, that that's getting used interchangeably. So what happens on job PDs is it says minimum six years. Well, what if you've been terrible at the thing for six years? Um, the the experience versus, you know, demonstrated level of expertise. And so it's, that's problematic from the HR point of view in the organisation is because they're not clear about the skill set they're just putting a number and thinking that that's shorthand for skill. And from the other end, from those of us who are um, who career hop or um, are looking to transition, is you look at that number and you think, well, how do I see even how do you, it's a chicken and egg situation? How do I get the job if I don't have the job in the first place? Um, and I think as musicians, also we're guilty of doing this that we overlay the years of experience and confuse that actually with the expertise and the skill set that we do have. And I think if we if we helped people be much clearer in separating the task or the activity and the requisite skill to complete that at a very high level, that's what we've got so much skill at, that, that, that the skill and the expertise is really what we have, but we've just been applying it to a you know, in a very particular way. And that's, I think, what often is problematic for musicians or anyone looking to career transition is to be able to think, um, like Inception, the movie, four levels down to actually what is the, what is the skill required to complete the task and have I, have I evidenced that in other ways in my life that I can make that analogy or make that demonstration in this application or in, in, in an interview process? But we're so focused on the activity and not, as you were talking about, the personal competencies of can you listen? Can you be vulnerable in the workplace? Um, what are you like under pressure? All these things that actually we really have have both experience and expertise in as trained musicians. Um, so, what Jackson? What are the things that you are using from your music training every day? And yeah, let's start there. Look, the last eighteen months of the COVID nineteen pandemic have really brought to the fore my performing background. I've really identified that I thrive in a crisis because I'm so used to not knowing what's around the corner, not knowing what might happen on stage. Uh, you know, I've had experience as a stage manager where something can happen and in that instant, you need to think about the audience experience, the safety of your performers and, and the people that are on the stage, um, you know, the procedural elements of what comes next, what cues have we skipped, what directions do I need to give, that ability to allocate tasks, uh, identifying the best people to do those tasks really quickly, uh, and the ability to keep face, you know, that, that you, you can control your emotions, you can uh, not hide them, but identify what you need to show in order to get people to feel the way they need to feel or to do the things that you need them to do. And, and that has been, I think, 
invaluable over the, over the last 18 months because things have been changing rapidly. People have become fatigued. They've needed uh, inspiration. They've needed to know that there is a way out of this, that we're still, there's a purpose. We're working towards something. We're not just limping along, trying to keep the lights on, that this is an opportunity. So I think the last 18 months for me have really crystallized those skills. There was one other point, Susan, I wanted to make um, for people who are listening who might be thinking that or starting to get a sense that maybe being an artist is, is something that they're not quite sure if it's for them. Uh, my advice is, is sort of twofold. And one is don't leave it too late because the saddest thing that I have seen, and I've seen it many times with some incredibly talented, passionate musicians and performers is that they leave it too late and there's the love of it. And eventually they're forced into a career transition and they cannot bring themselves to engage with their creative self anymore. And that is an awful thing. I, I, I can't imagine for myself anyway, how much of yourself you lose through that process. So don't leave it too long to try. On the flip side, there's ways that you can keep balance and don't, don't feel that you have to choose between one career or the other. I know some people who run very successful parallel careers where they work part-time in a professional uh, performing capacity and part-time in a completely different industry. Or maybe there's a way that you can keep it as a semi-professional or a hobby. But yeah, I would just say, although perhaps I've given the impression today that I found this beautiful balance and that I've ta I tap into all of my creative skills in my, in my uh, non-performing work, there's still a lot missing. And, and I haven't found that balance yet. And although I've had 10 years in higher education, I, I still think, how do I engage more with the arts? And I've done a master in arts and cultural management degree to try to find ways of knitting together my experience and, and give more back to the industry. Uh, so I'm not saying I have the right balance, but keep your options open because I think if you leave it too long to try a transition, if you're feeling that performing isn't for you, then I have seen people really lose a lot from it. That's really, really excellent insight. I hadn't thought, Jackson, about that point of um, waiting to the point that you've lost the love of it to do to, to do something about it. Or because I've thought about it often as um, in classical music, we seem to have we seem to have a fetish around suffering. And he, he or they who suffer most, i.e. spend the most amount of practice room time, give the most of themselves to the craft, uh, you know, the, it's almost like a competitive suffering. If you really care about it, you'll, you'll tolerate the greatest suffering. And so it's kind of part of the culture, actually, is that it's not, not only this starving artist notion, but the fact that you're not committed if you're not suffering in some way and so I think people's ability to tolerate that's finely crafted over many years of the training model and in the sector as well and so if we came back to that 
notion of well, we shouldn't have to suffer in any way for our work or our art, but also that it, that this exactly as you're saying is you the, the 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 spark within you becomes diminished and extinguished, and that's a loss for everybody. Primarily, it's a loss for you. One of the um, interviews I've just done with uh, Sarah Nisbet, illustrator, she was talking about for her. Um, uh, she feels, she said, it's it's like a set of drawers and if I try and keep my creativity, if I keep all the drawers shut, the back pressure is too strong, something, a, a cupboard will pop open. So she said her analogy was like find ways for the creativity to spring out in unexpected places um, because it, it, it has to come out of us and trying to keep it squashed down is only detrimental. And I think not being too precious about finding the perfect opportunity for, for just that, for releasing the pressure. I, one of the most incredible experiences I've had in recent years was uh, a couple of years ago in 2019, joining the University of Melbourne Staff Choir, which was a, a student-led project. And to reconnect with singing in a group of people that are just there because they love to sing. Most of them had no formal training. Most of them were shower singers or car singers. And that was totally fine. I had the best time because these were people who got so much joy out of hitting that high note. Maybe the tone wavered a bit. Maybe the vowel wasn't perfect. They didn't care. I didn't care. And the audience certainly didn't care because they were radiant. And that energy to be a part of something like that was just stunning and so if you've had professional training or you've been a professional performer that doesn't mean you still can't get so much out of being part of something amateur and it it also it also allows you to think very deeply about the why am i here which allows for okay, it's not perhaps it's it's not musically of a professional standard, but it's not about it's not meant to be that it's not for that. It, I come I come for the biscuits and the cup of tea and the chat, and I come to talk to you know I come to talk to other humans and and it, it can it's it's transcendent of the music. Music's part of it, but it's not actually the purpose. The purpose is to be with other people who are also incredibly passionate and committed to the same thing. I actually ran that project, Jackson, and I still even, it was it was designed um, to give music students a chance to create and lead something. And even, uh, I sort of left the university in that capacity, but even last year, up to last year, if I'm anywhere on campus, it's 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 quite common that someone will come and tap me on the shoulder and say, because we did a staff orchestra project as well, and say, oh, hi, Susan, I'm Tony from Chemistry, and I played, you might not remember, but I played trumpet in the staff orchestra, and I just wanted to say thank you. It was the best thing I've done as an employee of the university. So um, that project continues to live within, the joy continues to live within people. Um, so, Jackson, just one super quick question then. Is there, you were talking about trying to find ways to connect with the art sector and to continue to be part of that, just not 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 just performing, but in other ways. Are you are you engaged in any other act, either performing or activity within the arts sector right now? So at the moment, uh, about a year ago, I was invited to join the board of Opera Scholars Australia, that organisation that I'd been part of for, for several years in different capacities. And, and 
that has been incredible to be uh, part of a group of people that are not necessarily musicians. Many on the board are not musicians, but care very deeply about ensuring that the, the the organization continues because of the value it adds to young people trying to find their place in, in this sector. Uh, and so that is a great blend of my my management skills, my business skills from the university, but but also uh, my my passion and my experiences as a performer. I had also, I mentioned before, done a Master of Arts Management recently. That finished in 2009, I complete, uh, 2019 rather, I completed that. And my intention was uh, that 2020 was going to be a period of finding my, my path, connecting back with some, you know, semi-professional or, or amateur um, performing groups and starting to create a transition into an arts management capacity. I really miss working every day with creative people is something I've identified. And the last 10 years working in higher education, absolutely fantastic. It's time now for me to take my learnings from that sector and, and translate them back into the arts and cultural sector. COVID-19 sadly created a few disruptions in, in that regard. And I haven't uh, had the opportunity to reconnect with performing groups uh, over this period. Uh, and but my, my, my heart bleeds for everyone in that sector at the moment. It's, it's a really tough time. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to be able to, to uh, to reinvigorate that sector when when it's possible to do so and to be part of that that rebirthing if you like of the Australian arts and cultural scene. Certainly Jackson everything that you have to bring your whole self who you are all that lived experience and all of the skills that you've honed are what the sector needs and, and because all of it's coming from a place of of human-centered thinking who am I in the room with? What are we trying to achieve together? How do we create the conditions for us both to thrive and excel? And yeah, I just am so, I'm so excited to see where that's going to take you. And the, as you've used the word so many times, the opportunities you will create for others in your role as a leader. So it's been a gift today. Thank you so much for the honesty that you shared um, and the journey you shared and uh, fingers crossed we're on the other side of, of the pandemic quickly and, uh, and we can get you back in a leadership role within the sector. So I'll, I'll put links to everything we've talked about in the show notes today. But, um, yeah, thank you, Jackson. It's been, a, it's been a joy. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. Hey, thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please help me share these stories by sharing this with others. You can post about it on your socials, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or you can leave me a rating and a review about this podcast. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Notable Values. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.